0: Welcome to the Frenchie Plays Games podcast, where the games are real and paper money is outlawed. Friends and gamers, welcome to the Frenchie Plays Games podcast. Good to see you. I'm Frenchie, as you have already guessed. So welcome. Hey, I'm not advocating to go away from a board game fiat currency, but just for context, power grid is much better when you actually replace the paper money with chips. Much faster and enjoyable game. Very tactile. Anyway, appreciate that. Hey, by the way, just so you know, if you want to see a great skit, about uh, about how board gamers go away from paper currency and they go into maybe metal coins. Paula Deming at Things Get Dicey. It's a board game comedy sketch video, popular YouTube channel. I cannot recommend her highly enough. A few months ago, she came out with The Evolution of a Board Gamer. So I suggest you go ahead and watch that video. Hilarious, and you'll see the epiphany from Monopoly money to what it really should be. Anyway, thank you all for joining and I hope you've been having a good week. So this is Episode 5, and you're going to be hearing this probably the week of November 8th. I want to give you a couple of updates uh, before we get into what I'll talk about, which is just a quick recap of the games that I played in September and October. So uh, just a couple of things. So uh, I'll be putting this out, like I said, on November 8th. And then on November 9th, I will be traveling to sunny Orlando, Florida. Of course, with my luck, it'll probably be overcast and raining when I get there but I'll be going and attending the Dice Tower Retreat in Orlando that week from the 10th to the 14th. And so that's a retreat that the Dice Tower has in which there'll be about a couple hundred people there playing board games and just having a great old time. They did that earlier in September. This will be their second one. And so look forward to playing games with Tom, Z, uh, some of the Dice Tower crew, as well as a bunch of other uh, gamers. And obviously we're all family, we're all friends. We just haven't met each other, but uh, it'll be a great time. So really, really looking forward to that. Couple things of note, just some interesting things to look forward to. So if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, behind me are a couple of new games. So Seven Wonders Architects just hit my friendly local game store, picked up a copy of that. Gonna be doing an unboxing and also diving into that in the next week or two. And then also Car Wars 6th edition, more of the board game style of evolution of how that game has evolved. It's a game that I remember back in high school coming out when tabletop games and particularly role-playing games were becoming quite the norm. So I look forward to that unboxing, digging in and seeing what Steve Jackson Games has given us. And a few other neat little tidbits as well. Just picked up a copy of Hadrian's Wall, which has eluded me for quite some time this year and uh, got some more games coming. So stay tuned and we'll be uh, diving into that in the next few weeks, but that is not why. Uh, you're here. You're here to hear me talk about games that I played over September and October. And there was quite a bit played. I'm not going to go over all of them. There are some that I'm going to tee up for uh, different episodes coming through that are going to have a little bit better context. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the games that Frenchie played in September and October of this year. All right, first up, and looking back in my in my rearview mirror, the little uh, tongue tang gets all tumbled and my words found awful sunny. Sorry about that. Uh, but I want to talk to you a little bit about Tinner's Trail was a game that just got remastered uh, in the last uh, couple of months. And that's a game that's been around for about 10 or 12 years from Martin Wallace. And it's a game about mining in the southwestern portion of England and uh, players will go ahead and uh, bid on these different regions. Some of them will be a blind bid where the tile is upside down, so you're bidding, you're not knowing what you're going to get. Some of them will be already pulled or turned face up, and you'll know. But the system is pretty much designed, besides the bidding, it's an economic Euro game in which players will have action points. They'll have so uh, so many points on an action track that every move they make will have a determinate amount of points. And so they're going to be going ahead and either mining for ore or removing water or buying equipment such as steam pumps or trains to transport the ore and remove the water so they can dig deeper. And so they'll be moving across that. But the other part of the game is actually when you get towards the end of the action track, to go over onto the economy track, the income track, where you can go ahead and not only trade your ore in for money, but then you can trade your money in for victory points as well. And there's a little bit of a balance to that in where a player that gets to that income track first is going to have a higher amount that they can sell their ore for and also be able to get more points as a result. And then a player that comes in last will have fewer than the other players, still be able to generate an income and get points. So there's a little bit of this balance and strategy between going ahead and uh, you know, taking as many actions as you can and then maximizing the amount of points you're gonna get per round because there's going to be basically four game rounds. So there's a lot of min-max strategy. Uh, there is a mechanic there where you can have a pasty, which is a uh, pastry or a type of food that was a snack that miners would have. And so you would have a pastry or get a pastry and sell that for a dollar if you were low on money. I understand that. Not a great strategy, by the way. Uh, So a little cumbersome to work that in, and I've seen some players actually try to nickel and dime and try to edge a little bit. Um, So that is probably the only thing about the game that's a little problematic, Uh, but a great solid game overall if you can get past the board of stick. If you can look uh, past the fact that it seems like once everything's there except for the colorful cubes, um, kind of blend in. So it's a little tough to determine what's what, where you are, and how the board state is, but a really good game, and I think uh, produced well Uh, with this uh, remastered edition. So that is Tinner's Trail by Martin Wallace. Good economic game you should probably check out. All right, next one that was played was Terraforming Mars, but this was the new uh, version of Terraforming Mars. It's not an expansion, it's a standalone game. It's called Ares Expedition. Now this is solely a car-driven game. A lot of Terraforming Mars in it where you have Terraforming Mars, you have the tiles, the ocean tiles, you have the temperature and the oxygen track that you need to move up. But basically, it's a little bit of a pared-down version where players will, again, get corporations. They will acquire cards. They'll build up these cards, which will have engines to help them get resources and different combos where they will try to go ahead and move up the terraforming track of their terraforming rating by getting uh, oxygen and water and temperature going on Mars. But the core thing about this game and the cool thing about this game is that instead of the different phases, the players will all have five cards, and they get to choose one card. Each of these cards have a different phase to them. And so they'll play one card, and that will activate a phase. So the game plays anywhere from uh, two to four players with a solo variant, and a player that plays that card down uh, will also have another benefit by the by the fact that there will be another ability that they can take if they play that card. So if you have four players, there's five phases, and uh, everyone plays a different phase, then you will play four phases because every player will go ahead and act at, and take an action on those phases, but they'll get the benefit only from the phase that they drew face up. Um, but If you have multiple players turn up the same card, then you're still only gonna take those phases that are revealed. So if you have four players out of five phases, there's always gonna be one phase that is not revealed. But when you have four players, let's say everyone turns up the same phase, say the research phase, that's the only phase you're gonna play. The other four phases, are not gonna be activated. So you can see where there's a little bit of strategy there that's kind of worked in the game, where a player can go, you know what, I know they need to go ahead and generate some income, because they're really low. So I'm gonna let them do that. I'm gonna play this so I can still generate some income but I could also take a, you know, play one of these other things as well. Play a red card or play a blue card. So there's a lot of strategy that's built into that. It's a much shorter version of the game. Uh, the map's not quite as big, so it's a little bit of, uh, okay, it wasn't as climatic of terraforming and seeing the planet flourish, but a pleasant game overall it definitely does give a good terraforming Mars experience, but you still have a lot of management with the cards and trying to keep track of everything because if you're not careful, it's easy to miss some of those effects on uh, how the cards kind of activate off of each other, but a great game, and I'm really happy they came out. And as to forming Mars Ares Expedition. So one of the biggest games to come out this year is uh, the third game in the trilogy that uh, Eric Lang designed that started off with Blood Rage and continued through Rising Sun and has now culminated with his latest release, and that is Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Now, Ankh, Gods of Egypt is an area control game uh, where you are a god of Egypt, one of the many gods they had in a time where Egypt was under polytheism, the worship of many gods, and trying to move through and still be the relevant god as they as they start to drift towards monotheism. And so players will try to go ahead and uh, build pyramids, do do, do different monuments, try to get followers and do different things with acts of devotion to move up a devotion track and have relevance. They'll do this by uh, selecting one of four actions in which they can go ahead and move. They can get uh, different followers. They can go ahead and use an Ankh power on their God dashboard, allows them to get different powers. And then invariably they will trigger an event. Those events might be uh, taking over monuments, they might be uh, redistributing the, uh, the regions of the board and reprioritizing them. And then there's a conflict uh, event that happens a few times during the game in which the gods will conflict, whoever has the biggest conflict or, or whatever will win that area. And then they will continue to dominate in that area. But the board state will continue to shift with some of these mechanics, and it's really cool. Now, if you've heard about this game, you're probably wondering about this infamous merge rule. If you haven't heard about the game, just real quick, uh, about three-quarters of the way of the game, the two players that are the lowest two on the Devotion track will merge as to one god as some of the Egyptian mythology Uh, had uh, gods that had merged to become one god. And so in a thematic sense that works, but what a lot of players tend to have a problem with is, okay, maybe you're third and fourth place and now we gotta work together. To create some strategies to them as well, uh, especially if you know beforehand that that's part of the game, you can probably work to get a little bit ahead of the game uh, because what's gonna happen is as the two players merge, the player that is the furthest behind on the devotion track um, that's where the devotion will start, so the player in the third place is going to put that there, but then everything else that the last player has is going to go ahead to the third player. So the followers, uh, everything on their God dashboard and everything. So when you start to see that, you might be able to uh, play a little bit different game, but for the uninitiated, it's going to be a little bit of a problem. Plus, when you get towards that last conflict, a couple of turns before those those last two events that trigger the game, in, any player that is not a certain spot on the devotion track is out of the game. So yes, there's player elimination in that as well. So my, my take on the game is it's a fantastic game. Uh, It can be problematic for some players, and I think if you're going to teach it um, or you're going to try to learn it, you need to know that ahead of time. I praise Eric Lang for the innovation that he brought in the game. I praise him for trying to do something new. While modern board games have kind of shunned a little bit of any player elimination or anything like that, it's great to see something refreshing. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of time for me to figure out how this rates with uh, Blood, Rage, and Rising Sun. I think this game is going to have some legs. I think people are going to totally enjoy it. But it is going to be a sticking point and a dividing point for some, and I appreciate that and know that it won't be uh, for many. In fact, some I'm sure that some people who like Rising Sun and Blood Rage probably won't go for this game at all just because of that mechanic. But great game in its own right. I think it's going to have some longevity. Praise Eric Lang for his ability to uh, test some uncharted waters or let's say, hey, let's go back into that pool, stir it up a little bit and see what we can come up with. Uh, great game. Check it out. Just understand that that merge rule and a little bit of late-game player elimination does exist. But I think if you can put up with that, you'll have as good a time as I did. And that is Ankh, Gods of Egypt. I think one of the coolest games that has come out uh, this year and uh, is already a really good, highly-rated game in Geek uh, is a small game, and it's called Cascadia. Cascadia is a game set in the Pacific Northwest, and it's a tile uh, drafting and tile laying game where players will have a row of tiles uh, with different habitats on it, different landscape environments. They'll be drawing and they'll be placing on a tableau in front of them. Each player will have their own tableau. And then their goal is to go ahead and link these habitats, the mountains together, all the rivers together, all the plains, the wetlands and everything together, and try to create habitats so they have a tableau that maximizes the points for the most contiguous habitat. But within that is another mechanic built on it. And as you draft a tile, you also have to draft a token that's adjacent to that. That token's gonna to be represented in one of five different wildlife, like a fox or a bear or a salmon. And so players are gonna to have to place that on a tile that has those, that's open, that has one of those symbols on it, but, in order to score points that way, they're going to have to do it based on some cards that are drawn. Those cards are going to represent the different animals and a different scoring condition. So for instance, one of the cards for the salmon means the longest run of salmon and based on however many salmon you have in your longest contiguous run will determine how many points you have. A hawk scores points for each individual hawk, but they need to be solitary so they can't be adjacent to each other. A Lot of variability with cards. It is a game that I think a lot of people will look at as a carcassonne killer because it is a tile laying game at its core. But I've played this and taught this with, with about a dozen people. It is a fantastic game. These are people that have played heavy Euro games. They play some big epic games, and so they have loved this game. And it's a great game to teach people. We actually taught a couple of, of young gamers that have only literally played Catan. It's the only thing that they knew about board games. we amazed at how many board games our group had played Cascadia and absolutely fell in love with it. Easy game to teach. Fun game to have, a good game if you're an experienced player to throttle back, but there's enough meat on the bone to enjoy it if you want some strategy. And it's a game I highly, highly recommend and glad that it's see that it's doing well. That's Cascadia. I suggest you check it out. Okay, real quick, I'm going to talk about Dune Imperium because Dune has been all the rage because of the new movie that just came out a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's a cinema, uh, cinematographic, um, cinematic cinematography. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> the production and everything's beautiful. Um, there are a little bit of, of holes in the stories, a little bit of problematic with uh, with touch of the casting from what I've heard some people say, but overall a great movie. We'll love to see what they do. It's basically been a Dune 1982 killer for me. Uh, so while I don't say that with games, I'll definitely say that with, uh, with the movie, but we're talking about games. So uh, that name games kind of brought me back to center here for what I'm supposed to talk about, Dune Imperium. Great game that came out last year, absolutely love it. A good blend of worker placement with deck building, Uh, very thematic. Love the fact that there's a conflict in that game, and uh, that game is driven by the conflict. You will not really get victory points unless you go into conflict. And so it's all taken place on being able to uh, get your uh, armies garrisoned, on Arrakis and then being able to play these entry cards that'll help you in conflict, being able to time it just right so you can get the maximum amount, being able to time the conflict cards as well. So there's a bit where you can go ahead and pass and then if somebody else uh, plays a card, you can play another card. So I like that strategy and, and that's the type of game I like where you can pass on a turn and then go ahead and do something else. But it's also a balance of gaining resources, uh, area control, excuse me, uh, worker placement, and then also uh, having influence on the different allied tracks with the Bene Gesserit and the Freemen and the Spacing and Guild and so forth. So fantastic game, game, Dune Imperium. The expansion, Rise of X, is coming up very, very soon. So uh, I'm curious. I've seen a little bit of uh, what they've done with that. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that folds into the gameplay. But uh, right now, this month, it seems to be all about Dune, so I've got to make a plug for it. Okay, a couple of more games here just to kind of give you a recap. Again, these aren't all, but I just want to go over the high points. So I'm going to talk about two games because we just got through October and, you know, that's the time of year where the weather starts to change and the days get shorter and it's colder outside. The moon seems to be bigger. A lot of spooky times, the the Halloween feel that's in the air. Uh, So two games I played. Uh, One is a classic game that I'm ashamed that I haven't played, but now I don't have to say that anymore because I played it. And another game is a brand new offering of a game that came out couple of years ago, but still has a nice Halloween theme to it. So the first game was Betrayal at House of the Hill. Frenchie, you didn't play that yet? I said, well, I've played it now so I can check it off. I just have not had an opportunity to that. Uh, Classic Games, published by Avalon Hill. I think Will Wheaton actually had that on an episode of Tabletop a few years ago when he was creating uh, the Tabletop series. But uh, Betrayal at House of the Hill is just players with different characters with kind of a different stat on their card. And, uh, they're moving through this uh, this mansion, this house, and so they'll flip tiles up trying to get items, trying to get omens, and then there'll be an event invariably that triggers where one of the players becomes a traitor, the betrayal happens, and then now it's kind of a one versus many type game. Uh, I understand the appeal to the game. I like the variability. Uh, I like kind of the theme and everything like that. I do feel it's a bit random, and I've heard that the expansion has some overpowered modules, which we just played right out of the base game. Uh, probably not a game that I'm going to seek out, but if players are playing it and there's nothing else uh, around or another game that's at the table that's intriguing, I will readily play it. But uh, definitely not something in my sweet spot, but uh, an enjoyable game nonetheless, and I understand why that's a modern classic. Now, the other game I played in the horror or a spooky feel, was uh, American Monsters. It's Horrified, the American Monsters edition. So Horrified came out a few years ago. And it's a co-op game and they featured the universal monsters like Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and the Mummy. So this came out with the American cryptids uh, such as Bigfoot and the Jersey Devil and my favorite Chupacabra. And so where players are, are an investigator and uh, each Monster has a, a asymmetrical uh, way of playing, way of movement, uh, way of doing things, an asymmetrical way to advance, and then also an asymmetrical way in which you defeat them. So the players have to work together to pick up these tokens and these items and then be able to, to defeat the monsters uh, based on, on their uh, their abilities and everything that are all unique. Really cool game. It's a great family game. It's a game that I understand the appeal. I like it. I think it's an easy game to teach. Uh, and it's enough there to kind of work on if you like co-ops, a good game to kind of throttle back a little bit and have an enjoyable evening, particularly when it's October or some chilly night uh, or a night where you just uh, have watched uh, or getting ready to watch uh, one of those B-horror movies that you can't really take seriously. So uh, that was uh, Horrified American Monsters as well as Betrayal of House on the Hill. And uh, happy Halloween, about a week late. So a game that flies under the radar that I wish more people would play is called Hadara. Hadara is uh, was published by Z-Man Games uh, about 2019, so about two years ago. And it's a civilization uh, game type, um, a little abstracted down, but it's primarily a card drafting game in which players will have a civilization board uh, and they'll have a predetermined uh, starting of gold and Uh, military and culture and then food. And so what they're trying to do is they will draft cards and so there'll be this rotating dial, which every turn players will draft a card from a deck and then the next round they'll go ahead and draft uh, cards from the following deck. So players will go ahead on the deck that they're designated, pick up two cards, they will take one and then they'll discard the other face up. And then they'll play that one on their board and basically these cards are people but they'll give them different resources. And then once that's done and players have gone through all of the uh, decks where they have uh, picked up a card, played one, or sold it to get income, but played them, and then discarded the other one face up in the discard pile. Once they've drawn from all the decks, then they'll go through a phase where they will go ahead and derive income. They'll go ahead and build colonies and build statues, and then they'll do the same drafting process but with all the face-up cards. and They'll go one at a time and so you'll have some uh, public information and you'll be able to more strategically get the cards that are advantageous for you. So then you'll go ahead and score again but at the end you'll also have to count your food a la Uwe Rosenberg and make sure that you have enough food to feed the people the cards that you've played. If not you're going to have to lose some of them really neat game. Uh, again, this is another game that we taught to some brand new gamers to our game group. They liked it quite a bit and uh, some other players that are experienced gamers liked it a lot. I wish more people would see it. It's a great game. I think you will totally enjoy it. If you like Euro games, it's an abstracted uh, um, civilization game, but it does have a good uh, semblance of engine building within that and then being able to manage your resources and set yourself up uh, to score some great points towards game end. So that is Hadara. I think again, it's a game that's underrated, and I think uh, play it, check it out, rate it on BoardGameGeek. I like to see that climb up the rankings a little bit more. All right, the last game I'm going to talk about this week is Coco Pelli. Coco Pelli is the newest game from Stefan Feld, and this is probably the most unfeld game. That I have played, and in a Kokopelli is where uh, this is a game that is based on the culture of the indigenous people of North America, and so the artwork's really well done, looks beautiful, and each uh, card represents a different ceremony in the indigenous people's uh, lives, and so players are going to have the same deck of cards. Uh, based on selection tiles that they will put out for different ceremonies. And those selection tiles will have point tokens on that. That'll be up for grad for the first players and the second players that'll go ahead and complete those ceremonies. So players will have a board in front of them. They will go ahead and uh, either draw a card or play a card to open a ceremony. First card that is played will be open on a ceremony and then they'll play cards to match that. And then if they get four cards, they can close the ceremony. Um, but they only have three of each card and so they'll need to go ahead and use their Coco Cocopelli wild card but one of the interesting things is you can play on the first two spaces of the adjacent player on either side of you so besides the four spots you have on your village board you can also play on the two spots to the player on your left and two spots on the player to your right so now you can see a little bit of where you can go ahead and combo off and say i'll go ahead and do that because you can score points if you close a ceremony on somebody else's board even though you can only open a ceremony on yours but you can go ahead and leverage that and maybe save a card for later. Or maybe you have a card that you're not opening a ceremony. So there's a lot of strategy in there, too. And I saw that subtly over subsequent gameplays. What I like about the game is that process. It's a short game. And it looks very light, but when you start playing it, it's got enough depth of of strategy that you go, oh, because you can combo up the cards. Well, if I do this, I get an extra victory point. But if I close this ceremony here, I get an extra victory point. But if I draw a card, I do this. And so figuring out, because each card when you open the ceremony will create an ability as long as that ceremony is in play. Once that ceremony is gone, then you don't have that ability anymore. So it's really neat to figure out how you're going to play those cards strategically. How can you go ahead and close somebody's ceremony to maybe take away that or maybe give you some points. Now, they'll still get a point if you close one of their ceremonies, but you're going to get the point that's on the tile, the four-pointer or the three-pointer. So it's a really neat game. Again, I think Phil did a nice little uh, sideways shift there in creating it. It's not anywhere near the strategic or that brain-burner tough decisions that you typically find in this game, but it has enough there. That I think it'll be enjoyable. So I'm curious to see how this is going to uh, be found out. I did a review for this a couple weeks ago, so I suggest you check it out. That's Coco Pelli' latest offering from Steffenfeld. So Frenchie has a treat for everyone this week. I'm gonna start a new segment. It's gonna be called Frenchie's Top 10 List. So those of you who have been in the States or who have watched some of the US programming over the last 30 years, there was always a late show, famous late show that would do a top 10 list. And so Frenchy's going to do something very similar to this. And uh, these are primarily going to be board game related related top 10 lists. There might be some top 10 lists with pop and geek culture, but really cool. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy these quite a bit. So this week, I'm going to introduce the top 10 reasons that we play board games. So it's going to be the top 10 reasons we play board games. So we're going to start. Cue in a drum roll. Number 10, top 10 reasons we play board games. Number 10. Even though cable is dying, there's still nothing on TV. Number nine, I've got this huge board game table and don't have any idea what to do with it. Number eight, I need something to do during those boring work from home virtual meetings. Number seven, it's a perfect excuse to ignore your in-laws during the holidays. Number six, reasons we play board games. It's a coordinated move by the Ikea corporation to sell more Calic shelves. Number five, by covering my dining room table, it's a great excuse to never cook or clean. Number four, we've been waiting 20 years for Tom Brady to retire so we can finally watch the Super Bowl, that's why we play board games. Number three, I can't sing, dance, or tell funny stories, so I might as well be a board game content creator. Don't read into that. Number two, the reason we play board games, we're just biding time between episodes of Critical Role. And the number one reason that we play board games, wait, do you mean there's more to do in life? Hey, friends and gamers, thank you so much. Uh, Ask you to go ahead and subscribe while you're there. You've made it this far. You can just hit that button real quick. Like it. Appreciate you all. And uh, until next week, don't forget, play nice. Everyone take care.